Certified, qualified, West Side host Steve Lucky Luciano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into the greatest show on earth. It's Hard Luck Show, coming to you from the bunker in Southern California. My co-host, my partner, is Chumahan Bowen, American Indian. Southern Californian. Tell your children not to walk my way. Elegant barbarian. Here to bring you the motherfucking metal once again. Hell yeah. Yeah, are you ready? Mothers, are you ready for the hard luck show? Come on. Want to fucking open the eyes to your innocent little children to all the dark wonders that are out there. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, are you ready for that? I don't think you are. I think you're going to sit there and cry in your little closet and pray for mercy. Get him, partner. None will come. None will come. Get him, partner. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Come on. That's yeah. God damn. That's how I, damn wake, it. That's how yeah. I wake up every morning, bro. God damn it. God damn it. Jesus Christ, Beautiful. give me more of that in my life. Well, and we, yeah, we, we have a guest, not you, man? We got a couple of guests. Yes, we do. We got a couple of guests, and I guess what I'm trying to figure out is which guests are we going to be introduced to first? Oh, I got the high sign, so it looks like... We'll let you handle the first guest introduction. I'll handle the second. Ladies and gentlemen, coming to the front stage... In full effect. He's got a tank top on and a giant fucking medallion with giant fucking guitars on it. Yep. And you're listening That's to right. one of his tracks. It's Gabriel Rosales to the front. Yeah. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. He's looking at this guy right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What Hell did yeah. you play? What Woo. did you play on this? I played everything on this. And on did this? all the vocals. I kept the drums. I did bass, drums, vocals, uh, like everything. But there's the people that come to nice. me. So I play guitar, bass. Yeah, you can't help me while I'm in here. What, what are you saying right, right, here for right now? It's actually about during a riot in jail. Behind this glass, I start to wonder who I know. Am I too violent? Does it show my family seems so distant? Though I know it doesn't last forever. Yeah. yeah. That's dope. ties to humanity. My tests all sit in front of me. I eat and I sleep and I wait. Feel by hate. Don't know me what I've done, I've punished some But the taste of my soul This is like, teeth and play the role. like this is like fight the power the music, day. man That's a point, yeah You'll never yeah. once know it's here yeah. Live your life with no cares I start to fight on this road to show myself When did you, when you wrote, you said you wrote that about a prison riot? Oh, it was a jail riot, yeah, yeah, yeah A jail riot? Yeah, yeah, yeah Look, right there Look, there's Big Left throwing a chair Look at that, there's Big Left throwing a chair Uh-oh, look out uh-oh. Prison riot. Damn. Yeah. We've got our reoccurring 
<laughs> um, underground scholar. This is also advisor. Consultant. Consultant to the show. To the stars. To our formerly incarcerated guests, many of them. Let's welcome back Mr. Danny Morello. Yo, 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 yo. What's up, y'all? Yo. You know, he's yes. Golden Gloves boxer of Oaxaca. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, gentlemen. Hey Danny, what part are you playing on? Did you play all the instruments on this one too? No, that's all. That, yeah. no, that nothing to do with me, yeah. huh? What? But you were in a jail, right? <laughs> Look at that. I, I want to start talking, but I also want this thing to fucking kick in. That was also the last one, right? Yeah. The DMX song. Oh, remember? There, there it goes. Uh oh, shit. Danny's getting crazy. He's punching himself in the face. <laughs> getting ready for war. Yeah, come on, get psyched up. Generals gathered in their masses. Just like witches at black masses. Evil minds and plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. Feels the bodies burning. Hey. As the war machine keeps hey. I, I don't have a prison riot story, but what I do have is that I was exposed to rock music while in prison. I was in my thing. And it was um it was a homie uh Scooby from La Habra who exposed me to Black Sabbath, Danzig. Big shout out to Scooby. Yeah. yeah, hell yeah. Right? Hope you're getting plenty of Scooby snacks wherever you are, my friend. <laughs> um, so, Danny was telling us about his trials and tribulations in Oaxaca and Cabo San Lucas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he prefers the private little pueblos near the sea. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, it was Danny who introduced us to you, Gabriel. So, yes. uh, Danny, why did you think Gabriel would be an interesting guy for us to talk to? Oh, man. Homie got a... Homie got a dope story, right? He's um, got a dope story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, um, I met um, Gabe through one of my roommates at UC Berkeley while Gabe was an undergrad at UC Irvine. And y'all were part of the student for sensible drug policy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really? Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So this, my roommate um, was part of some student organizing up in Berkeley when I was a student. And yeah, I went to like some conference and met Gabe. And I guess Gabe might, might have told him that you were formerly incarcerated. I don't know how that happened, but... We got connected. That was 2014, 2015. Yeah, man, so long ago. It's crazy how time flies. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, and um, and since then, you know, we've been connected, right? And, and um, you know, he's been, you know, doing work at um, graduated from UC Irvine, got into the PhD program at UC Irvine. I, I'm not sure exactly what program. What's the program? PhD. What PhD it's and what? Gabe? Criminology, Law, and Society. Criminology, law, mm-hmm. and society. Is that three subjects or one? Well, crim- it's, it's a weird kind of like blend of things because criminology is one and then law and society is like another kind of sociology um, component. And so they just put them all together. So it's got this – you have learned criminology theory but then as well as uh, law and society, which is like basically how people just kind of interact with law. You know what what I mean? caused you to pick that? Um, just kind of my history, you know what I mean? And like stuff that I was interested in doing, the organizations that I was working with. And then, um, and then also just going to the root and, uh, you know, I mean, just spending a little bit of, you know, I'm not, I, 
people spend actual time and in, in, you know incarcerated i just did a little an internship you know like i called my internship in county jail um that's it so it's like when i learned about what you know what was going on there the politics involved there also just saw just uh how privileged i was as a person to be able to you know get my sentence reduced and stuff like that and, and be able to um you know and then go back in later after i got educated to start teaching in prison again um like it just gave me this other, you know, I, that was what I wanted to spend my time doing, you know. Right. Just so that um, we can bring some context to the discussion, right? You play an instrument. What instruments do you play? I play guitar, bass, piano. Uh, I sing and I rap and I scream and I yell. <laughs> right. And yeah. you've uh, toured with various musicians, correct? Yes. Who yeah. have you toured? Give us the hit list. Um, let's see. George Lynch's Lynch Mob, Jennifer Lopez, Christina Milian, work with Sendog from Cypress Hill, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Uh, Jose Pacias from Incubus. Uh, let's see, Sheena Easton. Uh, fuck, there's a bunch, man. Yeah. You know what? I worked <laughs> with the drummer from Rage Against the Machine. The oh yeah yeah because uh, who went on to be an audio slave? Yeah yeah right right right. I can't He's remember dope. his name. He he was cast in one of my short films. I think his name's Wilkes, right? Yeah, yeah, Wilkes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also worked with Maynard Keenan from Tool. Oh, Tool. Yeah. Do you like Tool? I love Tool. I fucking love Tool. That's my shit. Yeah. Like, but enough about music. What does J Lo smell like? <laughs> she smells fantastic. She right? good. I don't know. This is a long time ago too, so she might smell different now. It's been, it was like it's been twenty years, so she oh. might be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Steve just well, he was like, oh. So, yeah, but, uh, well, listen, I mean, nothing from nothing. Even I've seen, listen, I ain't going to lie. She still looks good to me. No, she does, absolutely. She's holding up like a fucking champ compared to some of these other ladies. That she you takes see care of herself 100%. Absolutely. Right, mm-hmm. right. She looks like, she probably, man, she just looks like she smells like Baja California <laughs> Ocean, bro, to me. Anyway. She's Puerto Rican, bro. Is she? Okay, she <laughs> smells Rican. like the Caribbean. She looks like, she smells like the Caribbean. There you go. All right, very good. So, all right, so your history, right? Music. So, how did you, where did you, st- where did your Let's call it, I don't know what, interest in criminal and law and society. Mm-hmm. Where did the roots start? Where did that really start? Um, really, it was like kind of what you know Danny mentioned is like um, students for essential drug policy. Like I've you know, battled addiction. I've been sober for 14 years now. Congratulations. So, thank you. I appreciate it. What, yeah. was, what is your drug of choice? Um, pretty much everything. Well, I mean, but alcohol, you know what I mean? Mainly. Yeah, yeah. What was, what was the, what, tell us what it was that got you to be like, you know what? I got to stop this shit. Uh, well, it wasn't my health, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I grew up in an alcoholic household, you know, uh, um, loved my dad to death. You know, he's one of 13 kids. He's from Calientes, Mexico, you know. And uh, my, my parents met in DFE, in Mexico City. And so they came over here. And so um, I didn't necessarily, uh, he, he didn't have a lot of, you know, ways to cope with his emotions and feelings and stuff like that. So he spent a lot of time drinking. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like my, my parents split when I was really young. Um, sometimes my dad was too intoxicated to take care of me when I was with him. You know what I mean? So my right. mom kind of kept me away from him for a little bit. And then, uh, I moved up to Santa Cruz with my mom when I was, uh, 14 years old. And, um, Man. she was actually, she was, she's badass. You know, she, she went to UCI once she got a divorce. Cause she's like, you know, traditional Catholic woman. She didn't want to get a divorce cause it was against God. So she was either going to commit suicide or get a divorce. So luckily she chose divorce instead, you know? Amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. And then she went back to school. Um, she went to UCI, and then she got accepted to a uh, master's program in Chicano Studies and uh, uh, UCSC. So she took me up there, and then her and I started butting heads. She, you know, kicked me out of the house, told me I couldn't live there anymore because um, we were just. You know, I was button like, heads <laughs> yeah. over what, Gabe? Um, a bunch of different things. Like I was just kind of just doing my own thing. Like from a young age, like because my dad was kind of like drunk a lot, you know, or not a lot. He he was, you know, he paid the bills, but 
um, when you have to be the adult as a as a young person, you know what I mean? Like you're the responsible one. Yeah. Like I felt like the rules didn't apply to me, so I kind of did whatever I wanted to do. Um, you know, she was like a devout Christian at the time. I got it like into the occult and stuff like that. I right. Came, I came home with like the Necronomicon, the Satanic Bible, and that's it. You know what I mean? And then she like was all good, you know. And then she looked at it. And she was like, "Oh, I felt the evil when I came in the house, and that kind of stuff." And like, um, you know, I was smoking cigarettes. I was still pretty much sober in junior high because I, I didn't want to end up like you know I didn't want to be like my dad. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we started butting heads, and then she, you know, and plus I was kind of. In, Messing up her study time because she was in grad school and that's a lot of it's a lot of work, you know. Yeah. So she's just like, you get, you should go live with your dad, you know, go move down there. So I did. I came back down to Orange County, and um, and that's when I, you know, like I kind of started trying to outdrink my dad. You know what I mean? Like, because he scared me when he drank, and he was also a jerk when he drank. So I wanted to not be scared anymore, and I also wanted to see if I could outdrink him and prove to him that you didn't have to be an asshole when you drank. You know what I mean? So, Damn, yeah, it was bro. crazy. So by the time I mean, like, when I, you know, early high school career, like I was, um, you know, just get drunk on the weekends. And then by the time I was 17, I realized that I, um, I, I couldn't think of a day of the week that I wasn't drunk. Like I was getting drunk every single day, like hammered. right. And um, but it was crazy because I was able to pull through. Like I was rehearsing with bands, like three or four bands a week. You know, school was like second thought. I was always just, you know, literally rehearsing every single night with different bands. And that yeah. was kind of like. You know, uh, that was like boot camp for musicians. You know what I mean? Like I was just playing all the time. It kept me out of trouble, a lot of trouble that I could have gotten in otherwise. Right. Plus, alcoholism is part of the deal in, in music, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you think you're winning. You think you're doing, you're putting on a better show and you're fucking hammered and just being a scene. You know what I mean? Right. And then um, and then luckily I got onto a, like a national act when I graduated high school. So I never thought about college. I just, I started touring like pretty much right out of high school. Hey, what don't people understand what it's like to really tour with a national act right out of high school? Like most people have a fantasy of what they think it is what's what's the real what what was it like well i was uh i mean seriously bro like intimidated as fuck you know what i mean like how did you break through that um alcohol I, yeah i mean that's how i was not stressed out i mean I, I wasn't able to go on stage until we played because the venues were 21 and over so i had to sit on the tour bus and wait until we played you know so then i'd have to and then um and it was just a fucking debacle bro like because <laughs> after the you know after we play it was like the venue was yours for the night and you could do whatever you wanted to destroy as much stuff as you wanted to and nothing happened, you know? Like, you didn't have to be responsible for anything, you know what I mean? Because, like, all you had to do is roll into the bus in your bunk, and then you drive to the next state, and then you wake up, and you do it all over again. So I was waking waking up at, like, 2 or 3 in the afternoon, and then I'd pour, like, a bunch of protein in a shake, put Jack Daniels in, shake it up, and then drink that. That was my protein shake in the morning. Jack Daniels and protein. Right. Yeah. So right. Like, and, um, they you call know. that uh, hillbilly muscle milk. Oh, my Look at the, yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds. If you would have just saw Gabe's face, I think I saw his soul leave his body and come right back into it. Oh, man. It's just really like, muscle milk. Dude, it's so out, man. It's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's disgusting. I mean, just looking back on it now, you know, whatever. I had to do it, you know. It's like Listen, I, I, I've, been off the, I've been off the sauce for 19 years. You're beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. But I, 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 don't, I don't judge alcoholism and, and addiction stories in that way. Like, right. I don't get grossed out. Like, I was a guy that was like, what do you mean you don't like warm Jägermeister? What's the matter? You're not really committed to this oh, yeah. thing. Then, all right, get the fuck out of my right. face, right? Yeah. So Jack Daniels and fucking protein powder in the morning, no problem. Yeah. Well, no, I feel you. I feel you. It's like, I, I, it's funny because it's been 14 years and still every time I get a grip of cash, I'm like, you know how much cocaine I could buy with this right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the first thing. I did that forever, bro. <laughs> I did that forever. <laughs> how much I could get with this? Right. I mean, that was just, you know, exactly. It was like, but then, yeah, once, you know, alcohol... Got you know, and that was uh, uh my nineteen to twenty one years old. So when I came back off tour and I had turned twenty one on the road in St. Louis, Missouri, um, you know, like in, 
It was, yeah, dude, bizarre shit. Yeah, the, the city of brotherly love, yeah. or whatever, the gateway, the archway, the uh, St. Louis. The gateway city. The Is gateway city. St. Louis? Yeah, 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 yeah. that giant arch, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Lewis and Clark started off. <laughs> Bro, I don't even remember, man. There's right. like shit I can't even remember of like being on tour. Like I don't I I wish I remembered. Dude, places. I can't imagine a weirder place to turn twenty one than St. Louis, Missouri. Cause St. Louis is a weird town, bro. It's got the Mississippi going through it. Mm-hmm. So it's got a southern aspect. But it's also got like an East Coast aspect mm. because a lot. That's like the second biggest little Italy is in St. Louis, mm. right? And then, then, and and then you got that Midwestern part, and then they, of course, that's the launching pad to westward migration. So this weird confluence of all these weird, wow. interesting, fucked up things, and then there you have sweet little Gabe turning <laughs> twenty-one that's with funny. a bass guitar and some Jack Daniels. What happened, dude? What did what did they do? Well, like, it was. Uh, it's funny because we played in this place. It was like this. Uh, this area that just had a bunch of venues and stuff like that. So, and then music kept going. It's not like around here. Like music went till four or five in the morning, six a.m. So, like we were the headlining act at like eleven p.m. Right? But there was another band after us and another band after them. So they were playing till four or six in the morning. You know what I mean? And we're just like, what? There's another band loading in when we're done. Like that was supposed to be it, you know? And then people are still playing. And there was strip clubs surrounding there. So of course it was just like, okay, we're hitting every freaking strip club there. Right. You know? And I think one of the Backstreet Boys happened to be there too. So I was like talking shit to him all drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and like, um, yeah, it was ridiculous. Like the whole the rest of the team were like backed away from me because they're just like, you're out of your fucking mind, dude. Like, like I'm 21 today. Yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. Like this is this is what happens. But you know, it was like that privilege of like, you know, you're playing in a band, you can do whatever the fuck you want, right? Destroy the venue, and then you know, you get to roll into the bus, and you're in a new state, and like it starts all over again. You know what I mean? So it was terrible. You know what I mean? It's, uh, um, in terms yeah. of like. Addiction in terms of like responsibility for your actions for a bunch of different things, but um, I had a blast. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Hey, what, what's it like on a tour bus, man? Like, I mean, do, are there people farting on each other in the bunks and playing weird ass games like that? Yeah, it was a lot of chaos. Like, I, you know, I would fight with the drummer all the time, like just drunk and just wrestling. He, <laughs> he broke my thumb a couple times and shit like that. You know what I mean? And like, my thumb was broken. I'm like, I need this to play, bro. Right. Like, it's the like, bases. What the fuck? So it was funny. It was good though. It was uh, it was a learning experience and. You know, we had a blast, and it, it, yeah, it was crazy. But, like, when I came back home, and I was still trying to live this way, you know, like, destroying venues and, like, you know, like, freaking pouring wax on myself in restaurants and shit like that, and, like, throwing glass, and, like, all my friends are just like, you can't you can't keep doing this. You know, like, we have to see these people tomorrow, right? So um, I ended up going to this meditation school where I was gone in silence for 10 days. So I, I went there because I was like, this is where I could maybe figure out a way to kind of, Wait like, a second. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. It's, you went to a meditation school? Yeah, that's like one of the things that's like helped me stay sober, I think, for the most part. You know? Right, but did you go to a silent retreat? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. 10 days. 10 days. 10, Ten days, days. No you didn't, no talking. No talking, 16 hours a day meditating. Yeah. Wow, dude. Yeah. It's our like, sound days, guy, though. our sound guy went to Vipassana? That's it, Vipassana. Okay. That's our sound one. guy went to Vipassana, okay? Dope. All right. He was there for a week. Yeah. He said by like day two, his mind was fucking just spinning. He didn't realize all this shit. And he was like crying. Oh, bro. A couple of the guys that he was with, like his roommate, his roommate dude. Started to take his, tried to take his pants off. <laughs> what? Tried to give him a rusty trombone. <laughs> no, he fucking, the guy just up, up like, and. I found out after three days. I'm gay, I'm gay now, guys. Uh, it took silence to find this out. He fucking took. Sean was quiet, right? He's, he's trying to follow the rules, right? So Sean's sitting there and he said he was sweating bullets and all this shit. And he said, all of a sudden, his roommate goes, Sean! Oh, no. <laughs> 
this ain't for me, man. And he just like walked out. And Sean no. was tripping because he didn't know, like, am I supposed to say anything? Or Goodbye. Yeah. Dude, that is fucking That's hilarious, That's a true story. Bro. He, stayed, wow. he stayed silent. <laughs> he stayed silent. He said when his wife and his dog showed up to pick him up a week later, he broke down in tears. Like, he just couldn't say. He was like, I'm the best That's heavy, bro. So you were there for 10 days. Yeah, yeah. The, because you, the first time you do a positive meditation course, they make you do the te- You can't go any less than 10 days. Because you don't even do the real meditation until the fourth day because your mind's so like you know you're living like a householder like and we if you actually break down if you spoke the way your mind thinks like you would sound like a fucking lunatic yes. because you jump from t- topic to topic right. and then you think this and this links to this and yeah. you just yeah. connect all these things big lepke talks like that it's crazy <clears throat> yep. right yep. right yep. so wait a second so okay so you go to the so wait a second you're pouring wax at yourself at Red Robin. <laughs> at Red Robin. Right. And then you fucking go like, okay, I got to go to Vipassana. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Well, no, one of my buddies, like this other musician that I played with, uh, uh, that I grew up playing with, uh, he he was like really introverted and he I mean, lacked some like, you know, kind of uh, socially awkward and stuff like that. Right. And he went to Vipassana. <laughs> And he Lacks comes back. social skills. Yeah. yeah. And social anxiety, right? Man, and he came back like a different person. I was like, what the fuck like, happened to you, bro? Like, it was crazy. And um, <laughs> and I just felt like, you know, I'm like, okay, maybe this is something I need to do because I needed something, you know? I was like, it was, you know, I mean, I was like causing, I mean, I was like getting deeper in other states, you know? I'm like, okay, let me just dab some heroin on my, my uh, oh. weed while I'm smoking it. And then, oh, wow. you know, like, and then, you know, you go into oh, the wow. studio and then you're like... <laughs> I mean, I started doing blow, you know, right. I was like, drugs got harder and harder. And I remember being in a studio, like, um, recording a funk album and the studio owner's like, here, want some lines to, you know, I'm like, yeah. So I did it and it was fucking glass, you know, and it burned my nose. I'm like, oh, fuck, what is this? What kind of blow is this? You were up like, for fucking a week. Bro, he, he's like, uh, it's not, he's, he's like, it's, it's meth, bro. It's just fucking glass. And I'm like, what the fuck? I was so pissed, you know, I'm, right. like, I'm, not, I'm like, I don't do this shit. He's like, what do you do now? You know? <laughs> And so, you know, but we recorded the whole album in, like, one night, you know? Right, <laughs> right, right. It and is it true that was Sting, right? You guys recorded yeah, it? Yeah, right. It's funny. Uh, I actually ended up playing with uh, Andy Summers from The Police. I played with him, too. Like, oh, that's um, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a joke. That was a joke. I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's cool. That's crazy. We don't need any definition. What's up with the suicidal tendencies tank, though? Oh, I just love suicidal. I grew up listening to suicidal. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I like. I don't know Mike Muir and Jim Muir and all them cats. I mean, the music is just unbelievable. He always gets top-notch musicians. Um, the songs are dope. You know, I mean, everything from, like, uh, you know, um, Lights, Camera, Revolution, and can't. How can I laugh tomorrow? I can't even smile today. You know, and like off the first album too. You know, and like obviously Robert Trujillo is like, you know, was like one of my first influences as a bass player. You know, Chicano bass player and just killing. You know, slapping in metal. You know what I mean? Which doesn't wasn't like, you know, it infectious grooves too. So that was kind of something that was like, okay, I can I can incorporate these different styles in heavy music without people being like, you know, like he kind of broke a lot of barriers. You know, right? Yeah. So I love Suicidal Man. Um. So. Dude, on that first day though, when you show up, like, did you even know what to do? No, the, what the, what happens is okay. Like, you basically do breath work for the first four days, and this is something like that's really important because I feel like it's crucial to humans in general. Like, because I'm also before I did criminology, I was like an anthropology major. Cause uh-huh. I study, like, I mean, I like our species. It's trip. I think you can account for most of the problems in society by looking at our species as like apes. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. and, like where we came from naturally in terms of like the world and stuff like that, and how we evolved. So, like that kind of stuff, like. It makes me look at that. So when I showed up there and I was thinking about, um, you know, what I needed to do and kind of get back in touch, like um, you don't – what you do is you, you you meditate 16 hours a day, right? 
you focus on the breath for the first four days, and then the the I think it's like the end of the fourth day is when you do the real meditation. So keep in mind, within these sixteen hours, nobody's expects you to know what the fuck to do when you show up to meditation school. Right. You know? So they you you learn how to do it as you're there, right? So you do these three one hour sittings where they expect you not to move at all. So for one hour. You sit and you don't move at all. How hard is that? It's fucking impossible. Like, but I mean, that's the whole Steve, point, though. Did you do that? But that's the whole thing, though. I mean, that's like the teaching of it because no, they, sir. the basis of misery. They say of human misery is you trying to initiate a good feeling or push away a bad feeling, right? So when wait, you wait, wait, slow down, yeah, yeah, this is wait, wait, that's a heavy, that's a heavy concept, man. Yeah. They, 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 wait, say that again. Say that again. The, the the basis of human misery. Yeah. Is trying to initiate a good feeling or a good sensation um, or push away a bad sensation, right? Because all of our lives, we have our five senses that we're – all this stuff's coming at us at all times, right? Yeah. And we're processing these different things, and they give us sensations. So it's like um, – so when you sit for an hour and you don't move, right, your leg cramps up, and you don't do anything about it. You wait, God and then the damn. cramp goes away, right? Yeah. You get an itch on the top of your head. You want to scratch it. Right. You don't scratch it. You wait. The itch goes, goes away. away. You get a good feeling that comes up. You know, you're like, wow, I feel like I'm on mushrooms or something, like I'm tripping, right? And then that goes away. So what happens is if, we, if you do this enough times, three times a day for one hour, and then you do it for 10 days, right, or seven days, um, as the sensations come up and you don't react to them, you stop labeling them as good or bad. Mm. They're not good or bad. They're just sensations, right? So that teaches you the lesson of impermanence, right? Like everything comes and goes. Everything comes and goes. So if you don't react to it, it just flows through you, and you don't have to react to it. We don't have to be reactionary human beings. You know? We don't have to be reactionary beings, um, which kind of brings up inner peace you know, um, in general. And that's what I was going to try to use to stay sober at that point in time. But that didn't work. No, man. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, we was going somewhere with this. I know, right? You're like, this is amazing. It's like, our, it's like our literature, how like self-help books oh, and self-knowledge, right. we really believe Nil. that that would avail us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right. sitting right next to the rock star Buddha. And like, nah, yeah. yeah, it's like for about 72 hours, no, that shit worked. The best thing right, I right. ever saw, though, was while Gabe was talking, I like, and Gabe was like, yeah, and pushing away the bad feeling and trying to initiate a good feeling. And I like looked at Danny, and Danny, his face was just like glowing with like, <laughs> I'm receiving wisdom. Right now, yeah. And then he was like, no. Yeah, right. I yeah, mean, so, so that, but that's a good thing, though, right? That you, you went through that attempt, and even that attempt wasn't necessarily the full, complete stop. Well, yeah, I mean, also because, okay, uh, on the fourth day when I did the real meditation, and like, I, the only thing I could compare that feeling to was being on mushrooms, like psilocybin. Right. You know, psychedelics, like a full body high. And once that happened, I was like, holy shit, I could be high without having to take anything, right? This is amazing. That's a real addict thinking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right? The, the Buddha was like, do I bring this wisdom to the world and try to enlighten it or do I not? The addict is like, man, this feels like getting high. I right. can get high without the impunity. Exactly. 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 That's exactly it. And so, uh, you know, and so I tried to initiate that good feeling like for the next like two or three days, you know, because it was on the fourth day. And of course, like that's the whole point is like. The more you want that shit to happen, the more miserable you get, and then nothing happens. So by the eighth day, I gave up. I'm like, I don't give a fuck what happens anymore. Like, whatever. <laughs> We're still silent. Yeah, no, still silent. You know, like, I mean, you can talk <laughs> to the sure teachers. You weren't married? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, the whole time. Right. Like the sixth sense, right? You I don't give a fuck what happens <laughs> anymore. It doesn't matter. I've been dead this whole time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, and so finally on the eighth day, you know, like, that's what happens. It's like it came back again, and I was like, okay. 
you know, and when I finally like left the meditation and uh, the camp and then and then kind of went back to my lifestyle, you know, like I was definitely thinking a different way. And I maintained my meditation probably, you know, an hour in the morning and an hour at night. And I did that for a couple months. Um, but, you know, it was being in the music scene and like already already dabbling in harder drugs. Like it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, and this is like actually about the time I started playing with Jennifer Lopez, too. So it was like the gigs were higher profile. I was on a like a private plane with Jennifer Lopez, like touring Europe and shit. Um and I, yeah. and the you know everybody was like it was okay to like just fucking get you know after the show everybody was just doing I mean I played SNL twice Saturday Night twice um, and so there's an after party and then there's an after after party where everybody just goes and like does whatever the fuck they want you know dude what's it like playing on SNL it was dope it was crazy it was um, you know I grew up watching the show like <laughs> right. you know and uh, Chris Kattan, like when the first time I did it I got to luckily I got to do it twice so Chris Kattan was on it and Will Ferrell and. Uh, Tracy Morgan and um, like, where do you stand as the musician? You guys in a green room or in a back room while they're doing their shit? And you yeah. watch? Do you watch it like on a monitor? Yeah, yeah. We're like in the backstage, like exactly like you said, a green room. There's, it's all on a monitor. We can watch it. We know when we're supposed to be on stage and be ready to go. And then you know the camera pans over when it's time for you to play. And then and then we you know just play whatever tunes we're gonna do. We did about. Two I'm always times. tripping out by the music performances on SNL because mm -hmm. I, I like at least I want to say at least. 75% of the time, it's not the song I expect, nor is it the performance that I thought I was going to see. Oh, yeah. What mm. goes into thinking about what's going to be performed? How's that decided? Um, it's It depends on, like, I mean, the artist, I would say, you know, because it's really the you know the management, like, what kind of songs they want to promote. Right. If there's a song that, that's going to be coming out in the next week or two, and then they want to promote that because they're like, okay, we want this to be the hit. Let's play this song. Even though nobody knows it yet, we're going to try to make this song a hit. So at least people hear it on SNL first. Has any song ever actually been performed first on SNL and that turned into a top Billboard hit? I don't think I've ever heard of that. Have you, yeah. Steve? Have you ever heard him be like, oh, that was first time we ever heard Can't Get No Satisfaction from the Rolling <laughs> Stones? I'm sure that it has happened. I don't like know, that. man. Be honest with you. How, how did you get, how did you go into county, how did you get jail time? Uh, just being a drunk idiot, pretty much, for the most part, you know. But what does that mean? Well, 2004, I got a DUI, um, and then, um, I, yeah, I blew point two five at like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then, actually, I got, um... You know, like super violent one night, and ended up getting an aggravated assault with a deadly weapon charge and battery oh, yeah. charge. That'll do it. Yeah, and um, you know, it was uh, not my finest moments. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. But like, big learning experience, you know. And luckily, that was my first. Uh, you know, and I'm not. I consider myself privileged that I had two parents that cared about me. You know, right? What I mean? Like my dad loved me and my mom loved me, so like I feel like privileged. And it's funny, I was listening to like one of your podcasts, Danny, and you were talking about how like you were the first kid on the block to get Nintendo and just mm -hmm. like that. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with me. You know what I mean? Like my dad was a hard worker when he first moved here; was a gardener. You know, um, he was doing like landscaping, and then he started build up his own uh, contracting business, like in, in South Orange County, which is like you know an affluent area, so he right. was able to make a lot of money, sure. um, painting houses and stuff like that. And so he was able to provide for us. You know, and um, so I didn't feel like I was lacking anything necessarily, but you know, uh, I was I was kind of my money, dad had issues. Money goes a long way in terms of like getting a lawyer. Because as a kid, for me mm -hmm. and my brother, when we were getting in trouble, it took us a long time before we actually got time. Mm. Unlike my other friends, mm. right, whose parents didn't have money to get them a lawyer. Right, my dad had a company, a construction company, and mm. his friend was a lawyer. Right. Hey, my son got in trouble. Like, all right, I'll go. I'll go to court. Right, you know what I'm saying, and like he would always get us out of a situation, and right. pro and kind of prolong it, prolong it until like, all right, you got you got uh, the judge will be like, all right, I seen you long enough already. It's time right. for you to go to camp. But but, but, but as opposed to YA though, 
Right, but mm. you were getting. But that's all money. Yeah, yeah, money. Yeah, right. And what Money's were we just difference. talking to pork chop about? We were talking. We were talking about that. Like some dudes get you know caught up or whatever. And we were, the question is, is like, what decision did I make? And we kind of like ascertained it. Like, mm. you know what? A lot of people commit crimes, yeah. right? But if you commit crimes and you're rich, you're not gonna have the same getting stuck in the cycle. As guys that don't have the money to... Look at Bill Cosby. Well, we, we, guys, we weren't even rich, though. I than Bill Cosby, and they're doing all day yeah. and never mm. getting out. And they only got one girl right. accusing him of right. Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby right. did that son of a bitch. Hey, his thing... Hey, way, how many... Wait. By the way, fuck Bill Cosby. Hey, how many guys do you know, Steve, that the Supreme Court overturned their conviction? I actually you know how many? Fuck Bill Cosby. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So... So, yeah, so then you went to Men's Central? No, I was actually in Orange County, so I just went to Theo Lacey. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theo Lacey, which is, I was just reading that they're like under fire right now because there's not good security. Apparently, like, you know, people can access the guards and everyone else real easily. There's a bunch of contraband that just constantly goes into Theo Lacey. Is that a surprise you gave? No. Nah, I mean, like, there was a, well, somebody was murdered there like a couple weeks before I got, this is like 2007, you know? Like, actually, I think it was in my cube. Or the cube across from me because I was like in the I wasn't like the best cube there because I was out of the sight from the deputies so I could work out as much as I wanted to and kind of like do my own program you know right um, and then everybody came into my cube to do their their workouts and shit like that so it was uh but yeah there was always you know there's always drama man how it's, long were you there just months you know what I mean yeah I got dropped from three like years to months you know what I mean but then like a long ass probation you know like five I think it was like five years and then ten uh, couldn't order still can't own a firearm and stuff like that so so did you have to turn yourself in. Yeah, I did. What was that day like? Uh, you know, just the reality of like, okay, this, you know, like being sober, and I'd already been sober for a couple of weeks by that point, and just being like, okay, this is what I got to go do. You know, like freedom being taken away. You know, it's it's a whole trip, man. You know, I mean, it's just like the just not having freedom and, and not having autonomy and then being treated like uh, less than human. And um, did you did your friend drive you down there? How did you get down? My to girlfriend took me down there. Yeah. You, did you have one good goodbye before you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. And then, what was the feeling like? Because you'd have been on SNL. Now here you are walking yeah, bro, into that's, the. That's weird. Busted. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's crazy. It was just the reality of you know. I mean, like shit, shit can flip in a second. And I was already headed down that path as far as I knew. Like, I mean, you know, at twenty five, the doctors were telling me that I had the liver of a seventy year old man. You know, my blood pressure was through the roof, and like, um, my health was not enough for me to you know, want to stop, it had to be like, okay, I'm actually going to end up killing somebody, you know, right. um, somebody <clears throat> or I care myself. about or myself. Right. And then I'd be done then everything would be done. And so, um, you know, it's just a wake up call. And so in some aspects, like I do think I needed an intervention, you know what I mean? Cause I'm, I'm, I consider myself like an abolitionist. Like I don't believe in like the way things are going right now, but I needed an intervention and that was, um, it ended up being something positive for me in terms of like, um, what I learned and like now what my life path is my trajectory in terms of like helping people that are you know getting out and that are going in and also I teach in you know at Donovan State Prison now so um, so now it's like I'm working with people all the time and like writing letters that get people released and shit like that you know and just advocating nice. for people what, what, yeah. what I like about you know your, the work you're doing now though is that I know you're also doing you're doing a research project on COVID-19 right but um, there's also the project that you're doing with, 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 your, with your music yes in the system yeah 
Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, um, I started working with Jail Guitar Doors. So after I got um, a degree in criminology, Jail Society, Guitar Doors. Yeah, he's yeah. got a giant wow. medallion around his neck that says Jail Guitar Doors, and mm-hmm. that has two. Uh, guitars that look like the necks are keys as well, like keys to freedom or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, yeah, so what is that? So it's a nonprofit that I started. Um, I, I kind of just found one. Actually, one of my friends, he turned me on to it like on Instagram. He's like, check out what these people are doing. They're going into prison, and they're writing songs with uh, incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. And um, and and it's like a rehabilitative thing, you know what I mean? Right. And, um, and I'm like, this is dope. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm down to do it just because like, I got a degree in criminology. I'm a musician, and I'd love to go in there. And see, like, you know, what I could do and how I can bring... Because music really did help me in so many different sure. ways. You know? Right. It broke so many barriers. Like, I was able to, to relate and, and communicate with people that, you know, like, otherwise I would not have been able to, you know? Able to express yourself. A hundred percent. Yeah, in so many different ways, you know what I mean? Um, and I feel Sorry, like... <laughs> so many people would have... Uh, you know, a, a better way of understanding themselves if they were also had that option to work on music. So I. Uh, what makes music something that allows people to explore themselves? Well, this program specifically, I mean, you have to kind of when you're writing lyrics, um, it, it, you know, obviously it depends on what you're writing for. Because I've obviously worked in the pop world, and so like, <laughs> you know, pl- doing club shit, like just trying to make people like you know enjoy their lives and. and you know, whatever, if you're in the club or something like that, that's a different thing than, like, if you're trying to do actual internal work and learn about yourself. Right. Or, like, uh, relay a emotion or feeling that you have. Or, like, a lot of the music I'm doing now is trying to teach people, um, you know, like, um, just when you walk away from a song that you listen to, that you learn something and that you look at yourself and then you try to grow and be better after you hear the song. That's kind of like, and so I feel like music is one of the few things that can do that. And especially in the in the prison context with Jail Guitar Doors, what we do is... We give everybody journals. We have a class of like 18 to 24 people, 24 guys. We give them journals, and then probably half of them get guitars. We teach them very basic chords, five to six chords, because you can write any, you can write tons of songs with just five chords. Right. And then it's a 10-week program, and every week they go through a, um, a topic, and it's sequential. So it like, starts off with like you know, childhood, childhood trauma, and then like your family dynamics, and then um, you know, like anger and resentment. And then accountability, responsibility, amends and restoration and stuff like that. So we take them through this, right? Everybody writes in their journal. And then when we come together as a class, we take two lines from everybody's journal writings, their favorite, and we make an entire song out of that. Uh, how, so how good are the songs? Oh, bro, it's like, it's emotional. Like, I mean, I've cried in, in prison with, and like other, my students have, you know, and like, um, and then also it kind of, it bridges gaps between obviously like the, the racial, you know, the gangs that are there, you know what I mean? Like, um, sure. and everybody can relate to, you know, missing their families, missing their kids, you know what I mean? Right. And it's like, uh, and then when it comes to addiction, like, you know, I've, uh, been able to relate to a lot of people like that in, in terms of that. Cause I tell them my story, you know, and, and, um, and how, you know, like I was able to, I created this album, the album that you guys have right now. In 2009, um, pretty much like two years after, you know, just doing that uh, county jail time. And um, and it was about, you know, my friend that passed away, lead singer that, you know, I was working with. It's about my, you know, about addiction, about, I mean, so many different things, topics that are, are touched mm. on that. And they can express themselves through this. And, I mean, one example of how it works, too, is that, you know, like um, one of our guys, you know, he took somebody's life and um, he was always had issues with his father and he never forgave his dad, and he wouldn't forgive himself either. He's like, I don't ever deserve to be out. You know what I mean? Like, um, I took somebody's life, so because of that, I should spend my life in prison. And um, it was crazy. Like, when he finally forgave his dad, because I'm like, your dad's just a person. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to forgive him. But, I mean, like, you're, you know, like, that. what the, you know, the Buddha says about anger is, like, 
um, anger is like holding onto a fire or like an ember and expecting somebody else to get hurt. You're, right, right. You're just holding on to it and you're like pissed off and bitter. You're the one losing. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, you know, missing like valuable years off your life. And then, I mean, on in, even in terms of like biology, like, you know, cortisol and like the stress that you get from yeah. being stressed and pissed. You know what I mean? Um, and so finally, like he was able to let that go. And then he was able to like, forgive himself at the same time, which was huge for him. And then he got back in touch with his daughter. So he started a relationship with his daughter again. And then even just in terms of, like, violence, like, you know, on the level three yard, GP yard, there was a riot between blacks and whites. And um, and one of our students was a jazz uh, jazz singer, uh, this black dude, and then a like, ripping guitar player with a white kid. And they sat in the corner of the yard, and they just were working on jazz tunes while the fucking riot was happening. They were able to kind of avoid all the drama. And I'm obviously, that's a very anecdotal story. You know, I don't expect, I mean, this doesn't always happen. But it was something that kind of proved, you know, the point that music was able to kind of bridge some gaps and they were able to avoid some some drama that they didn't necessarily need to be part of, you know. Mm. You know what I find interesting about what you said is the story that you keyed off on was about a guy that had to work to forgive his father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you been able to forgive your father? Oh, yeah, 100%. How I mean, hard I, was that journey for you? Um, I mean, I started kind of forgiving people like because I was pissed off my mom when she kicked me out of the house when I was 14, you know. Yeah. I was really bitter about that. She ended up getting breast cancer when I was 18. So literally when I was playing piano drunk, like when I was like 17 or 18, you know, she called me and she's like, I have, you know, breast cancer. And the realization that like she couldn't be here anymore. And I've been like harboring all this anger towards her for kicking me out of the house when I was a teenager. Like I was finally able to let that go. I'm just like, this doesn't fucking matter. Like I care, this woman cares about me. I care about her. She did raise me. You know what I mean? Like, and here I am being all bitter. Like I need to just drop it and like appreciate the people that are around now while they're here because now she could die, you know, like sooner than, you know, most people. And, um, luckily she's been in remission for 20 plus years. She had a double mastectomy. Both her breasts were taken out and then she nude art modeled after that. Like just, dude, she did some bad ass shit. But my dad, yeah, I mean, I was trying to get him sober for my whole life. And so crazy story about that too, is that, um, when I was transferring from community college to UCI, I got my acceptance letter the day when well, my dad died in 2015. Mm. And uh, he died in Aguascalientes. So I like during my spring break, I had to go down to Aguascalientes and then, you know, we cremated him and then bring his ashes back. And that was my spring break before. And the day of his funeral, I got my acceptance letter to UCI. So it was like this wow. bittersweet thing, you know, like um, and I'd forgiven him a long time ago. Like um, I was just still frustrated, though. You know, it's like it's hard, you know, cause, because 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 it really would have meant a lot if he could have seen that you were accepted to yeah. the school. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was always proud of me, but he just, you know, he had his vices. He could never, like, uh, you know, like, could never kick it. You know, I'd have to go to the emergency room and see him because he'd be like, you know, like, they'd find, people would find him in the street, like, all bloody and shit from falling and having, like, blowing point three, you know. Right, right. And he was, like, 65 when he died. And it was just like, bro, like, you've been doing this <laughs> since I was 10. Like, are you done yet? I remember yelling at him in his hospital bed, like, are you done? You know, you've been doing this since I was 10, like, passing out drunk since I was 10. And I'm like, you know, late 30s now, and you're still doing this. And, you know, and, uh, but he just, yeah, he's this. There's some, I mean, there's no, you know, uh, a lot of people, including myself, alcoholic fathers and Mm. stuff like that, right? And it's from a certain working culture, Mm -hmm. it's sort of accepted. Yeah. Right? Or expected, even. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, yeah, I put in this amount of hours, I I do this, I fucking, right, and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna drink. That's what we do. Right. 
right? There's I, nothing wrong with what I'm doing. This mm-hmm. is this is this is my this partially my reward. Mm-hmm. If I stop doing this, I'm probably not gonna be able to do all the other shit that you need me to do. Right, right, right. No, totally. I feel like it's part of like Mexican culture too, in some ways too, right? Like, because I remember watching like this music video. I forget who it was. God, was it? And it was like the whole video. It was like from the '80s or something. And these two guys are just sitting at a table, just taking shots of tequila and singing and crying with each other. And I was like, <laughs> "That was it." I'm like, "That's what you do." Like, because that was always my go-to. I'm like, "Yeah." Like, no matter what happens, it's like, "Let's get fucked up," you know? Like, always. every job I could ever remember working. Every job like that, like when I worked at restaurants or worked there, wherever that all the cooks, busboys, like everybody was drinking mm. the whole time. Right. And at a certain time, all the 12 packs came out. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, it's just part of like, even in construction, or whatever, yeah. like, it's part of the get down. Bro. It's almost synonymous and, 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 with right. manhood. Hmm. Like yeah. being a man is. But Mexicans really do like live by that shit, bro. Well, I think I think like from what I've experienced, it seems like it's part of the tool to keep people working like that. Hmm. Like a lot of people might not really do all that, or might not. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. might not actually go for that for that level of pay and that time away from your family and all that other stuff that goes along with it, unless you could self medicate while you're doing, you're doing it. it. Right. Yes. That's big. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Some of those jobs are so fucking rough. You you want to be fucked up for them. You know what I'm saying? It's the only way they're gonna get done. I was talking to who were we talking? We were, I won't I won't say who it is. Listeners can go back through the through the shows and find it out. But we were talking to a guy that's in entertainment, and his job is 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 a great job in the sense that you know he p- cuts and edits the films and all this other kind of stuff. But he was like. When I asked him, like, yeah, man, you smoke weed and do shrooms while you do it. Like, wh- like, why is that help? And then he's like, man, because it can be tedious. Yeah. That, like, the boredom and the repetition that some jobs require, almost, like, the human, unless you're really committed to not, being, to not getting fucked up, needs, like, I'm going to have to have a buzz going in order to do this tedious-ass mm. fucking rough shit. I ain't going to, I'm not, I'm not, I can't do it any other way. Nobody could do it any other way. Uh, if you were to, if you were to, I'll just give you an example. Go ahead. How, how much I pay attention to the consumption of alcohol through, like, what I'm saying is like, if I were to take you on a Tuesday afternoon through Santa Monica, yeah, up on Wilshire, at about two thirty, three o'clock, and we're about to start driving up and down all the alleys by Wilshire Boulevard. Yeah. Everywhere you'd see little packs of like bus boys, cooks, <laughs> everybody. Yeah. Like in parking, little structures, kicking in a curb. They all got their bags with like somebody's got a 12 pack and they're all drinking in between the lunch hmm. and the dinner shift. Right. All these guys are off from the restaurant. You know, they're all getting together, having to be like, uh, this is like, you know, and then at nighttime, if you were to get on the bus, Going from the west side all the way downtown, you'd see all the workers that get on the bus, dude, and everybody's got their beers open, right? <laughs> everybody's drinking, right? And it, it's ain't, like, it ain't like a normal little beer either. No, it's like everybody getting in. Boy. Oh, yeah. And it's just part of, like, you work your ass off. These jobs nobody else wants to do. Hmm. You ain't too proud to do it. But right. at the end of it, man, you know, you need something to have to cope with 
working this hard-ass job. You may be living in an apartment with four other dudes. You're sending portion of your check maybe back home. There's a lot, man. It is a and, lot. And it is a lot, dude. And you know, you're you're these guys are also women and when they're watching everything going on on like these TVs and everything. Yeah. Like, and the, think about that. And to live that life and show up hmm. day after day might take some medication, bro. It might take some numbing to get through it. For fucking sure. Yeah. No doubt about it. I guess it's like when I when I hit the convenience store at four o'clock or any time later, there's always a bunch of workers. <laughs> they don't even have to be Chicano or Latin. Like there's there's like white painter dudes. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about. Give their past blue ribbon. Yeah, (laughs) and they got these. They got you know three tall cans, and the tall cans are sold you know by Budweiser, you know, or the three four special kind of deal, Mm -hmm. right? Because everybody knows, everyone up and down that chain of commerce knows that that medication is required for a lot of those jobs. I mean, what it's like. uh, I mean, they they talk about attorneys. I've known quite about uh, quite a uh, I've quite a bit of attorneys, dude, and it's like an attorney thing, dude. Like at to lunch hour to go fucking, hmm. you have drinks at lunch and you start having drinks at fucking four thirty, you know? Dude, there's 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 a ton. It's such a major. They thing. go into court after drinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like there's- finish off trial and you've been at lunch for like an hour and a half having a couple martinis <laughs> and go back in and represent Jeez. this fucking murder Easy. case. Uh, <laughs> nope. Done deal, Think about pal. that. Done deal. But that's also Not- with cocaine though too. <laughs> yeah, but the judges too. Yeah, the judges too. There's a reason why. He they go, they go out, hey, they pull that little bottle in the chambers. They got a scotch bottle. <laughs> no, dude. You know that hammer that they pound the thing off? It's got a screw on it. <laughs> <laughs> But the truth of the matter is, is in, in there is a required for your continuing education. Every attorney has to put in like whatever it is, 25 hours uh, every year of continuing education in legal field. At least two hours or something like that has to be about addiction hmm. and abuse of addiction. Hmm. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. They have a ton of programs for attorneys or people in the legal field. To deal with alcoholism or whatever that gets out of control. Because it runs rampant. Yeah, and it actually runs rampant in all the major professions. Right. Dentists, doctors. Dentists, doc- yeah. Doctors are infamous for prescribing shit to stock themselves. Tra- stock trade. That's just part of it for them. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? A little Coke, a couple shots of tequila. Mm-hmm. Right. In order to sit there and stress out and, and fucking... Look, dude, when you do the law and you do some of that reading is real fucking boring, bro. That's why That's why when they have this whole thing and, like, it is about money, dude. Because when they start fighting with, like, marijuana... Like, there's some people that don't want to drink. Marijuana does exactly the same thing for them. That's how they let loose. Mm. But it's criminalized. Right. And there's, I would, I, I would imagine and think there's a lot less car accidents of people smoking weed than drunk driving. Hey, let me oh, tell yeah. you something, man. They criminalized alcohol before driving, like was a major thing. They outlawed prohibition was way back when. Right, and they, they the temperance movement had their reasons at the time, and it was mostly 
spearheaded. It was before by, alcohol, before automobiles. You're saying? I'm saying I think there was automobiles, but it wasn't like it is today, where you have right. these highways and people could drive. It's like Model Ts and shit like that. It wasn't a major issue. Right. A, a few people probably had cars. Right. <laughs> Less people and right. they didn't go right. as fast right. and da da. But that right. wasn't the driving factor. The driving factor was husbands getting drunk, beating their wives, beating their wives losing the family paycheck, and. Mm. By being drunk and gambling or spending all their money on alcohol and all this other kind of shit. It was driven by women who were trying to get these guys who were their husbands, who were workers, mm-hmm. right, to get a little under control. And that this was a poison. And even then, those women were like, yeah, this is, this is so that these men do this shit and fuck everything up. We can't build a nest egg because we got a drunk mm. that's running everything and da-da-da-da-da-da. So... That's why that even went into place. So, so what you're saying is true. And what I'm saying is it's not even about car accidents, really. And now I do think that part of legalization of weed is the recognition that we may need to allow people to do other forms of self-medication to continue on with what we think is going to be happening in the next 100 years in this country. Mm. Right? Yeah. I would say also too, like psilocybin, like they're using that for PTSD. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like acid and stuff like that. Like for people that are have severe trauma. That, that I mean, those are all kinds of studies that are finally able to do. I mean, you know, obviously it's not accepted necessarily, but for me, I'm like, yeah. I mean, people microdose and shit like that. You know what I mean? Just so they can kind of. Uh, and, and the thing is, is I'm not against any of that stuff. Being a sober guy, like I don't judge anybody for anything. Like, right. do whatever you need to do. Like, I mean, smoking. Uh, weed instead of breaking the car or smoking meth is like a thousand times better obviously right you know what I mean so it's like um, whatever you gotta do but at the same time like um, I, yeah as legalization cause like I've been following the whole prohibition thing for a while too you know what I mean yeah. and Students for Sensible Drug Policy specifically was about that you know it was like legalizing everything decriminalizing everything because especially with like you know there's a market for it and it's like it, but it, it actually people make more money when it's illegal. You know what I mean? Like, because uh, it just rises the stakes up, and there's always always people to come and take those, um, the, the take over those markets again. You know what I mean? Yeah, but so like we're we're also talking about, you know, wh- where this also connects is where the the prison industrial complex meets up. Like, you mm. need a certain group of people that are stuck in an addiction, criminal incarceration trap that's one of the engines of the economy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like those workers where are you going to get those workers from these guys are going to one of the ways we can do this is is like this mm-hmm. right and so as we start decriminalizing marijuana we may really start looking at changing i think i don't have any evidence the basis on other than mm-hmm. my s- suspicions but I genuinely think the shift in drug policy has to do with a recognition in the shift of the economy and the labor force. Hmm. I think that we're all like like people that their jobs are to be in think tanks and think through all these things are pretty aware that like we're not going to be it's not there's no 1950s coming in the future. It's something else. Right. And it's going to be a lot of. What we see now, which is this weird, you know, strains of viruses that are mutating. And you said you were doing a research project on COVID? Not necessarily on COVID. I mean, it was actually, I'm going to be doing, because we've been collecting testimonies for people that are incarcerated. Yeah. To just discussing, like, what their experiences are. And every 35, 35 prisons in California, like, how is it COVID being handled in these situations at all these different prisons? So we've been collecting mm-hmm. testimonies from everybody basically across the state i've been reading that that it hasn't been handled basically that yeah. they've just exposed prisoners to 
the fucking COVID and, you know, hope you hope you make it. Yeah, a lot of times that's what it's been. Um, there's, uh, you know, obviously they lock people down. They, they take whoever they feel is infected into put them in solitary, you know, and, and just leave them there. No medication, you know. I mean, and every facility is, like, totally different. Like, we haven't got too many stories from Pelican Bay because they apparently did it right. I've talked to a bunch of people at Pelican Bay about it, and they were saying, like, they were, like, they were like we were actually taken care of. Like, we kept watching these outbreaks happen all over the place, but we were just, like, you know, which was, you know, I mean, good for them. You know, at the same time, like, um, there's other things that are happening. Like, right now, uh, because I teach at Donovan, I'm, like, kind of in tune with what's happening down there on the yeah. border of uh, Mexico and uh, in San Diego. And, like, um, now that they have uh, cameras, a bunch of uh, uh, COs were, you know, abusing um, disabled uh, inmates. And, um, and they were, like, you know, they were, like, guys in wheelchairs that were kicking them. You know what I mean? Just the correctional officers being correctional officers. So, anyways, they filed a class action lawsuit. Um, now all of the officers there have to wear cameras, so nobody is uh, – um, a bunch of COs are protesting this, and they're not coming to work. So they've been on lockdown for a while just because of that. But, you know, that's just like, – Think about the state of affairs of that. You got COs that are abusing handicapped, handicapped in, uh, whatever, uh, inmates. Then you have class action attorneys come in, and they win. There's new rules, and you got to wear a body cam, just like everywhere else. And now, now, now the guards are protesting, like, like, like that's inhibiting their freedom. How dare you violate my privacy to abuse people right. in a prison? <laughs> in a prison, it's so dark, yeah. man. It's so crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, just just about your the COVID thing is like, yeah, I, um, I'm not necessarily studying COVID, but I'm just studying the how you know the incarceral CDCR has been you know handling it. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys saw too. Like San Quentin had to reduce their population by fifty percent. Yeah, they also lost a uh, lawsuit. So we've been, you know, keeping track of like, you know, trying to keep track of what happens with the transfers and um, people being coerced to work that have, you know, uh, um, adverse, you know, health uh, conditions, and they're being coerced to work. You know, because uh, CEOs are threatening one fifteens on them and stuff like that. Why would they be coerced to work? What would a CEO need to coerce an inmate to work for? Just tell them to write them up. So, like, if they have, like, a, you know, a parole date or if they're looking at, you know, getting out anytime soon, then if they have any kind of marks on their uh, C-file. And know. what kind of work would somebody be doing that would have to be coerced like that? Um, like, work in the kitchen and stuff like that. And I think laundry probably, too, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, just to <coughs> keep, continue the facility functioning. Yeah. So, they're forced. Yeah. And, like, so we heard a couple of stories. There's tons of them. And there's, like, now there's, God, I mean, I think we've had, like, thousands of letters and, and uh, testimonies come in. So, I, you know, I... I haven't been able to sit there and listen to every every one of them because I'm in the um, process of of making sure these stories are actually put up on this website. It's a website archive uh, repository, so people, anybody, the public can listen to it. It's called what? Prison Pandemic. And what's that web address? Uh, UCI Prison Pandemic, I believe is what it is. UCI Prison Pandemic? Yeah. And you All can right. just click on, there's a map of California, and you can click on um, any prison in, in California and hear a story from there. Damn. Yeah. That's heavy shit, man. That's dope. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like it's it's became a it's, you know I mean it, it's been a thing that's been consuming, um, all consuming because we had no idea how we were going to do it. We just wanted to do it, and because we were originally trying to just get PPE to, to incarcerated people, you know what I mean? And like, but because CDCR was dropping the ball, and um, you know, and some people get pissed off about that kind of stuff, being like CDCR should be doing this, so why should I help out? But it's, to me, it's like this family in there. To me, it's like we got to help out anybody that's in there, you know, for, no matter what. So it's like regardless. So you worked. In pop music, mm. and you've also worked in or with people that are incarcerated, and you were incarcerated for a little bit, mm-hmm. right? 
What are the similarities in those worlds that you've seen, observation-wise? In in uh, in what in pop music or yeah, music like world? in that in that whole music world, that pop scene and stuff. Do you see any similarities? Do you see any interesting comparisons between that world and the the, the incarceration, the world of the the inmate? Well, it exploited labor, hundred percent. You know, what Man, I mean? like, <laughs> that came, wow, that came right out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, I got on this tour, you know, and a lot of times because like kids get out of music school, and you know, you're a young, hungry artist, and you're willing to play for pennies. You know what I mean? Like, so they'll put you up there, and you look good, and you're young. So, I mean, that was that was my story. You know, I was 22, and and uh, I could still play. You know what I mean? So I. I I was and luckily I had some talent behind what I, you know yeah. what I was what I was doing. Usually people with talent don't look so good. I, I guess yeah. <laughs> don't say yeah. I guess. Don't be a humble. Come on. All right, go ahead. But yeah, and so like uh, uh, you know they they get these young kids that just graduated from like you know whatever music school. That Berkeley. Willing, yeah. Well, I mean that's like a pretty that's a you know very uh, um that's a pretty high profile music school. Right. So it's like I'd be kind of hard. I think they they get hooked up. I don't know. A lot of people just don't even finish their degree at Berkeley if they get, are that good. Like, I know tons of musicians that just stopped. You know what I mean? Because they were like, so good, they just got snapped up in any way. That's kind of the way to, like, you know, it's just like anything else, I think. If, um, well, no, specifically with arts, you know, it's like when you're in demand, you know, you don't necessarily have, because I never went to music school, you know what I mean? And I kept getting gig, gigs consistently. I'm How did gigging. you learn the bass? Um, just practicing. Like, actually, um, having to move to places and not know anybody. And so I just, you know, like, especially when I was about 15 years old, and uh, when my mom, you know, told me to leave from Santa Cruz and I moved down to uh, Orange County, like I didn't know anybody. So like the whole summer before my freshman year in high school, I was literally, you know, playing 14 hours a day, you know, because there's nothing else to do. I didn't know anybody. Did you start out with tablature or what? Yeah, it's just tabs and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, originally I was a death metal singer, you know, like I was singing in a death metal band and, and you know, Deicide, Sepultura, you know, yeah. uh, Cannibal Corpse, all that stuff. Yeah. Slayer, the first songs I ever played live were Sepultura and... And Slayer and a Deicide, I think, like for a junior high, like freaking um, talent show. All the parents left, and all the kids in the front, like, yeah. And I was up there, just. Yeah, what is that? Describe (laughs) that singing. Like, what is that type of that style of singing? I don't hear it as much anymore, but there was like a period of time where I was like, what's the attempt there? Like, try to sound dark and like the a demon, or like what is that? I would, uh, yeah, you know what? I I forget who's. I think Death, the band Death, was like there, because like all the death metal stuff came out of Florida. You know yeah. what I mean? Like for some reason, like Obituary, Cannibal Corpse, Deicide, Death, like all these bands came out of. Florida. I don't know what the hell happened in Florida, but um, but that was like their vibe. They're just like you know, instead of just screaming. And I think it was kind of pulling away from the hair bands that were happening in the eighties. Right, right. Like people were just sick of that. Like, yeah! You know, like Slayer was still doing that. The first Slayer album, you know, who's like fucking the Tom Mariah is like screaming, like you know, with his hair all big, you know. And like, yeah. So they wanted to get away from that, right? Know? Especially all the lipstick and makeup and stuff, you know, right? Or, Candy bullshit, right? And so yeah. now they wanted to be all you know, like brutal, and so like they were wearing spikes and shit, and just yeah. like, you know, growling and stuff. But yeah, I mean, so that was what I wanted to do, and then you know, so I was playing metal when I first moved to, to down back down to Southern California. But you know, like anything else, like as you start getting better at more proficient on your instrument like i mean at least for me like i was um my mentor turned me on this book called zen guitar which is kind of like what brought me into the eastern philosophy would even open my mind up to eastern ways of thought sure um which was a way of looking at music and so like that was um i started just kind of appreciating all styles of music because i grew up you know like with old old mtv you know mtv raps you know what yeah, i mean like ed lover ed, ed lover headbangers ball you know um, and then, you know, like at 2007, when I got out of jail, 2008, 2009, I joined the Zulu Nation, um, which is like the originators of hip hop culture. Because I was listening to like a Tribe Called Quest and stuff yeah. like that. All those samples are from old jazz records. So I was listening to more jazz too. So it's like I kind of like was 
just appreciating music in as an art form in, in any way possible. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, when I started getting really practicing the most is when I was like 15 because I got into blues. Then I got into funk, you know, learning how to slap and stuff like that. And then um, and then just rehearsing, man. It was just, that's that's like what taught me the most out of everything is rehearsing. You know, like every single night for four years straight, like with various bands, like always. What's your craziest music story? I don't, it doesn't even necessarily have to be partying. Just got to be like, you were in the studio, da 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 da, and then, you know, fucking Prince walked in or Elvis Presley's oh. ghost was yeah. sitting on the toilet. <laughs> do you have doing a line? Right. Quincy <laughs> Jones turned to you and called you Frank. You know? like, do you have any weird. Crazy like uh, music stories where you're like, yeah, that, about it. that was a really crazy. Peter Tosh oh, came yeah. in and told me to shut the fuck up. Well, when I was on tour with Jennifer Lopez in Europe, um, you know, I was still partying. I think we were in Spain or something, and Spain like doesn't like the party doesn't start popping in like the clubs till like one or two a.m. Right, you know what I mean? So it was like we showed up at eleven, and we're like, "Where's everybody?" You know, it's almost midnight. <laughs> like, where's the party at? Where are the women at? And uh, and like they're like, "Well, you guys are here early." We're like, "It's like midnight almost." What do you mean early? <laughs> you know, they're like, "No, come back at like two or three. So we're like, "Okay, cool." So we came back, and you know, and then it's crazy. Just you know, the Spanish culture, like. Um, it, it's a trip, like, uh, just to, you know, studying music and like, cause I'm way into like Cuban jazz too and stuff like that too. And like the history of music on, on Cuba, you know, yeah. between like Royal African drumming and like gypsy guitar and Spanish guitar combined. Like, it's so dope. But like, you know, you go into a club and like there's music playing and there was a guitar player playing and like everybody knew how to do the claps, you know? Uh, the palmas, you know what I mean? Like, it was crazy. I'm like, everybody's like, just it was like, it was, everybody knows how what to do, you know. And so, anyways, ended up getting hammered, and um, you know, the lobby calls at like 9 a.m. or something like that, and uh, and I wake up at like 11, and I was like, you know, because we're supposed, I mean, I'm supposed to be on a plane flying to another country. It's not like I can roll into a tour bus in the bunk, right? You know, and I'm like, fuck. Like, what the, you know, I'm like, it's like, I can't believe I slept through every alarm that I had. People were knocking on my door, you know, and I'm like, this, it's not like a, like a slouch gig either, you know, it's like, this is, you know, Jennifer Lopez, you know? Right. And, um, and basically, oh, man, I forget who was there. I, I think finally, like somebody, like my phone rang and I finally woke up to it and, um, and like it was a tour manager and he's like, get downstairs right now. And I got down there and, um, you know, he's like rushing me in this car to the, the, the private freaking jet. Right. You know, and he's like, if if Jennifer gets on that plane before you do, you have to fly yourself to the next country. And I was like, fuck, you know, I'm like, you know, and this is like 2000, too. So I didn't even there was no cell phone. Like, I didn't have a cell phone until I was like 25. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. Like, you know, I still thought the Internet was stupid. I'm like, fuck, the Internet's <laughs> Like, why would anybody spend time on it? You know what I mean? Like, a lot of people thought that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so funny. And, uh, and so finally, like, you know, and then Benny Medina, Benny Medina is her man, was her manager at the time who had managed um, Will Smith, uh, Puffy, like all these different people. And I think even like Michael Jackson at one point, right? Uh. So, like, they get me to the airport. You know, I get on the tarmac, I'm running up the stairs, you know, and I get there, and Benny's like looking at me, like, like did you just, just show up, like, right now? You know, and, um, <laughs> And I was, like, you know, all hungover, like, trying not to puke on people while I'm coming through, you know what I mean? Like, and I sit down, and, like, my drummer, my homie, he's, like, 45 years old, and I'm 22. And all the people on the tour fucking, like, hated me because I was, like, you know, I was, like, 22 years old, and they're all, like, 40-plus. Right. And they spent their whole lives trying to get to this point, and I'm get here Get to kid. this point. Right. You're yeah. showing up hungover. Oh, dude. 
I fucking was so rolling pissed. the dice. And I was such a piece of shit too, because I like, I mean, I was, you know, like being a young kid on the tour, like I'd be trying to talk to people, and they were, uh, people would just ignore me, you know, they wouldn't <laughs> answer me, like. And I remember, like in Spain, one time we we're walking through an alleyway, and I'm like talking, and nobody's listening. And finally, I just stopped. I'm like, "Hey!" And they all turn around. I'm like, "Fuck all you guys!" And they're like, "Yeah!" And they're all stoked that I like finally talk shit to them. <laughs> they give me a big hug and shit. Um, so yeah, I finally get on the plane. Luckily, Jennifer didn't get on. Like, she literally got on like ten minutes after I did. And the drummer's looking at me like, "What? Like, what are you doing, dude? Like, you know?" He's like, "It's all downhill from here, kid. Like, this is like the peak. Like, anything else that comes after this is like gonna be stupid to you. Like, this is like, don't fuck this up. You know what I mean?" So I mean, it wasn't like a huge story, but it was a huge learning lesson, and it was like super embarrassing. And it was just dumb, you know? Like, what the? F- like, what the? And it's like, looking back on it, you know, I was like a forty-two-year-old man now. 20 years ago like why did you think you sh- you were eight had the you know like the audacity to do something like that but whatever yeah but you know what man i listen to that story and i go yeah that's right <laughs> okay but the flip side is some of the biggest musicians some of the biggest stars are the kind of people that would roll the dice on an opportunity like that yeah you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some of the greatest i'm reading right now the double life of bob dylan hmm all right cuz nice. cuz i'm like you know, yes, he's a great lyricist. No, he's a terrible singer. <laughs> Is he a great guitarist? No, he's not a great guitarist. Okay? Yeah. And, and his, his launching pad was folk music. Mm-hmm. Now, really think about that. Mm-hmm. Right? How did he go from that to being mm-hmm. as big as the Beatles? Beatles yeah. had four people, and they had decades. Yeah. He took his little weird show, mm-hmm. right, and turned it into something to the point where he got a Nobel Prize. That's hard. Right? Yeah. So what's going on there? And I'm reading all through that. But a lot of it That's is dope. getting real fucked up mm-hmm. and fucking up opportunities. Right, right, right. And there's a lot of places in his story where like a smarter, more business savvy guy wouldn't have made the choices he made. Mm. And they just worked out for him. Right. Right, they just worked out for him. Did he have knowledge of secret sauce? I, it's not clear. Mm. Or was he just kind of luckily threading the needle he threw a gutter ball and it just kind of like somehow hit a fucking strike <laughs> bro that's story of my life man seriously like i feel like they seriously like it's uh, uh, most of the shit that i've been doing i have no idea what's gonna happen like that's kind of like my you know my girlfriend hates it because she wants to plan stuff out like how do you not know what's gonna happen tomorrow i'm like i don't fucking know like i'm gonna do this i know i'm working towards this that's all i know like whatever happens else you know but i i think music's one of those things that's taught me how to navigate stuff it's yeah. like uh you know like um Darwinism and, and like evolution, like people always think that, you know, like survival of the fittest means the most intelligent and the strongest survive, but it's not that. It's adaptability. It's whoever can adapt. Right. It, whatever can adapt is what's going to survive. That's survival of the fittest. So it's like, in, especially in jazz music too, like I always relate music to, to jazz because it's like there's, um, or I mean, uh, life, because what happens is, is like you have these chord changes, which are arrangements, but when they come at you and you're improvising over it and it changes keys, you can't keep doing the same thing. You have to evolve with it, right? Right. So, like, that's kind of just the way you have to, I mean, to me, like, approach life. You know what I mean? It's like stuff you, stuff happens, you make it happen, and then when stuff that you didn't expect happen happens and you evolve with that and then you keep evolving, you keep evolving. You know? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a, also a line of thought that follows that, which is that some of the greatest things that are commercial items that countries are known for mm. were actually fuck-ups. Mm. Cheese, <laughs> champagne, Jeez. wine. Wine, initially, yeah. I think the grapes. earliest story comes from the Mediterranean, maybe the Persian Empire, I can't remember what it is, but they stored grapes, mm-hmm. and the grapes 
they left them too long and they fermented. Mm -hmm. And then they found out they made alcohol and now it's like like the greatest thing and blah, blah, blah. But like some of the greatest things are fuck-ups. So adaptability also doesn't mean design. Right. No, totally. I mean, I feel like United States in general, like, I mean, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of of just the U.S. is literally just the revolutionary music that came out of here. For sure. Blues, uh, jazz, hip-hop. You know what I mean? Like, rock and roll. Rock and roll. You know what I mean? Mm. Jimi Hendrix. Like, I mean, and it's all... A.A. A.A. Think about that. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah, that's right. Think mm -hmm. about that, dude. I mean, you could talk a lot of shit about America, and we do, and yeah, I do, and I do there's too. things to say, like, right. yeah, we can do better. 100%. But then you look on another side of it, and it's exactly right. The music, right? Tech. Mm -hmm. And then I think about A.A. Where was a sober 12-step program, right? Think about it. It costs a buck a day or whatever, a buck a meeting. Think about this. Think really think about that. How fucking insane is that concept? Mm -hmm. Like, do you imagine trying to talk a Russian into that, <laughs> right? Or a Frenchman? Like a Russian. Can you imagine? <laughs> right, right. Right. Like, what? So, what are we gonna do? We're gonna come in. And we're well, you know what? I feel like also though, Europe though doesn't have. Well, maybe they do. I was gonna say, um, they always people when are in the United States and they're at dinner. What do you do? Like in general, when you're sitting there and everybody's got a cocktail and the dinner's over, pound it, we gotta go. Everybody finishes their drinks. <laughs> yeah. But in Europe, they don't. They're like they'll leave like full glasses of wine there and shit like that. It's like they they don't. I don't think they approach alcohol the way we do. No, they're 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 completely different than we are. Right. Yeah. They do. They definitely approach alcohol differently. Little kids are drinking at the table when they're young. It's like the whole. But don't like, get it twisted. There's plenty of there fucking are, European yeah, yeah. alcohol. No, no, but there are. But when you. Do shit like with the sex and nudity and you make it all bad. Mm. It, it makes people, kids want it more. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're, they're obsessed with doing it now, you know? But, well, like all, we covered a lot of ground there. Man, know? we covered a lot of ground. We almost all didn't make it to the, the plane. Place. We almost didn't make it to the plane. <laughs> we almost time. didn't make it to the plane. We were all over the place there. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's an improv show. Yes. Open-ended. Yeah, no, I love it. I've been watching. I've been listening. Yeah. Everybody. You got, like, the whole team? That's dope. Yeah, trying to get as many people as we can. Oh, man. yeah. Danny's doing it. Because I saw Clint. I saw uh, Flacco was here, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. The homie Jack. Jack. Gentleman, Gentleman Jack. Jack. Gentleman Jack, man. I love that guy. We got to bring that dude back. Got I seen him, I seen oh, him a Jack? week ago. Yeah. yeah, how's he doing? He's doing good. It was his birthday about a week ago, and um, I took my niece. She's, like, nine years old, and she met him. And after the after the little barbecue, she's like, "Damn, your friend Jack's so cool, man." Yeah, he's a <laughs> yeah, he is. He's he is a cool he's guy. Hard. Jack yeah. Morris. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that dude's a, that dude's cool. We got some. Uh, how can people find you and the work you do? Give us a shout out and let people know. Yep, you can just go to Gabrielzalas. Uh, at just GabrielRosales.com. That's my website. You can okay. read about everything I'm doing there. That's a jail guitar doors. I also started my own nonprofit. Um, so I'm doing work, uh, not only like helping to get in, um, academic op options for people incarcerated, but also arts programs, also reentry services, um, as well as like humanitarian and international work. Like been to Uganda and like done all the stuff to try to help out people <laughs> in other places. You know what I mean? Um, and then I'm on Spotify. So the new album hopefully will be coming out this summer if I can finish it. Before uh, my next uh, year of grad school, but your yeah. album "Vital Nonsense" is on Spotify. It now. is, yeah. And how do they find you on Spotify? Just Gabriel Salas, my name G A B E R O S A L E S, and Gabriel. 
thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank, thank you for, you for coming. Uh, in. Learned a thank lot. you for coming in and sharing with us, brother. Yeah. We learned. We learned a bunch from you. Man, <laughs> I know. I learned a lot. I learned I'm going to stay away from Vipassana. Ah. <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> Danny Marillo. Yo, got some up? shout outs, partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, tell, first tell of all, us. you know, um, you know, shout out to all the folks that I'm doing work right now. I'm working with uh, underground scholars still, you know, Ooh. especially Gates part of the work that we're doing. Yeah. yeah. Continuing to expand to all of the UC campuses. Um, yes. I'm also um, I want to send a shout out to the homie uh, Artie from Carmelas. Mm. Um, he just got out uh, after nice. being incarcerated since 1987. Oh wow! Uh, unfortunately, he can't come back to LA County, but you know, hey, at least he's out. You know, yeah. and right hopefully, um, you know, help him out however I can. Yeah, I remember you talking about Artie from Carmelas. Yeah. I remember you. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, so he's finally out. That's awesome. Right. Yeah, that's that. You know, just fucking shout out to everybody, man. Thank you for Ooh. having me here. Shout out to everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Uh, underground scholars, USI. Yeah, I want to give a. Uh, I want to thank both you gentlemen for showing up today. It's important work that these gentlemen are doing, and uh, it's important topics that we're talking about. Shout out to uh, the Soul Assassins, the Cookies Family, Vibes, Esteban Oriol, uh, my kids, the City of Santa Monica, Hard to kill keep your eyes and ears open always listen to the hard luck show and www.hardsupermaxhardware.com check us out we're dropping summer in about a week all right and if you need any kind of legal assistance or you just need somebody to fucking fight on your side avonda bowen llp my law firm you can talk directly to me talk to let me tell you something some people reach right out to me and I tell them straight up, save your money. That ain't going to work. Right. But if it is going to work, you want me doing the work for That's you. That's it. <laughs> Let's do the work. Let's do the fucking work. Like we do about this time. Adios, amigos. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. That was beautiful. Sorry, I was jumping around a lot. You're, you're, no, you're